This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB by the legend that is Jerry Armstrong, Northern Irish hero, got the famous goal at the World Cup as we all know about, played for Tottenham, Watford over in Majorca, West Brom at Shalbane and a few others. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Callum. Great to be on. The first thing I want to talk about before we come to your career, you're doing a show at the moment, the Jerry Armstrong show, and I have to say, I've been gripped since I discovered it because the standard of guests and the laughs are absolutely fantastic. How did it come about? My wife, about eight weeks ago in the lockdown, we were bored out of our heads and we were sitting there and nobody could communicate with anybody else. And she said to me, do you know what? Why don't you just go online and try and cheer people up? Because I try and keep the family cheered up. I'm very, very jovial and a positive person. And um, I said, look, do you know what? I'll give it a go. So we went out and applauded the NHS at 8 o'clock and gave them a big applause. And then we came in and went on the air at a quarter past eight and thought, well, we'll see what happens. So I had 1,400 people tuned in and they kept giving me questions and answers on the Zoom call. And I thought, this is good. This is fun. And they were asking questions about some of my teammates and, you know, uh, the Martin O'Neill's, the Jimmy Nichols, the Sammy McElroy's, the Pat Jennings. I couldn't really answer the questions for them. So I said, you know what? I'll get in touch with them next week. And I'll, I'll see if they'll answer the question. So I contacted um, the lads, a couple of them each week. And they, they, we didn't do the Zoom call at, at the start. We just did a live feed. And uh, I got them to send me in a video. Because Martin's not much into the, the Facebook stuff and, and into uh, the, the modern technology. A bit like myself. I'm not much into it either. But um, my wife and my 13-year-old keep me right. So <laughs> he said, look, I'll get Geraldine. I'll get my wife, Geraldine. She she'll sort it out or one of the girls will sort it out one of his daughters so anyway he sent me a video which was six and a half minutes and it was a couple of stories funny stories and just martin chatting generally and wishing everybody well and then billy hamilton did the same but billy wore the most ridiculous shirt and it was like <laughs> different colors and it was something you see in the caribbean and he, he, he's a funny lad he's a great lad and i said billy that's a rascal of a shirt and it was like People come back and said, what a shirt Billy was wearing. The stories he told were funny. We made people smile and laugh, and that was what it was all about. So we started off two, three weeks in a row. Jimmy Nickel then, Sammy McElroy. We did all of those lads. And uh, Pat Jennings come on and did a wee video for me. And then I said, you know what? It would be better if I could talk to them in a link. And they said, well, use Zoom. I said, I don't even know anything about Zoom. So I was showing how to do Zoom, and then we... We got uh, our first guest was Sammy McElroy on and I did Sammy and he told me about his time at Manchester United when he made his debut against Manchester City in a three-all draw. Dennis Loft failed the fitness test in the hotel. I told him, Frank O'Farrell said, you're playing Sammy and George Best said to him on the coach, listen son, see if you score today. I'm going to get you a wee surprise, a wee, a wee present. So George beats two or three players in the match and slips the ball into Sammy and Sammy beats one and wangs it into the back of the net. And it finished 3-3 against Man City. So George presents some of the huge bottle of champagne. And Sammy said, I wouldn't even open that champagne for 15 years because George gave me it, you know. Great stuff like that. And uh, he said, but then, you know, further on down the line, he said, like six months later, I'm being called up for the international team. We've got a, a match against Spain in Hull because in 1972, Northern Ireland couldn't play games in Northern Ireland. So they had to play them in Hull. And Terry Neal was the manager of Hull and also the manager of Northern Ireland. So he had been called up and they played on the Saturday night and they were due to leave on the Sunday morning at nine o'clock from the train station in Manchester to go to Hull. So he was out with George and he said to George half eleven, he says, I'm going to go home. I've had a couple of beers. I'm going to get myself ready for tomorrow. George says, I'll see you at the platform about five to nine, nine o'clock. And uh, of course, Sammy turns up at a quarter to nine. And he's there first. So 10 to nine comes, five to nine comes, still no George. Nine o'clock comes. George still isn't there and Sammy has to go and buy his own ticket, gets on the train and away he goes to Hull. 
Tuesday arrives and George turns up at the training ground at the hotel in Hull, but he's got Miss Great Britain on his arm. And uh, the lads just, you know, you couldn't write the script for it, you know, typical George. And uh, Terry Neal asked the lads and said, look, George has only just turned up, but I'm not going to consider him for, for the play, you know, if you don't want me to. And the lads said, no, no, we want George to play, get, get him on board. So anyway, George played the game and, you know, it was just, that was his start into um, soccer and international soccer and obviously an insight into George Best. So it was great. We told stories about George and we told stories about uh, all the different characters we've had in the squads and uh, not just at Manchester United, but obviously in the international team. And when I was in Spain and when I played for Tottenham, when I played for Watford, you know, you come across some great characters and uh, I've been doing that ever since. So this, the guests are getting better. We had Graham Sunis on last week with Brian Hamilton. He was my first guest and Graham was great, big friend of mine. Uh, we go back 45 years and, and I had a good chat with Graham and I've been working with him down in Dublin and uh, uh, Virgin Media doing the Champions League and Europa League. We do that. And um, before that, the week before that, I had John Barnes, teammate of mine from Watford, watched him develop as a player. What a player. First game I saw John Barnes play properly in a youth cup game. And it was the second leg of the youth cup final. The first leg finished 4-3 to Watford at Old Trafford. The second leg was a week later at uh, Vicarage Road. And the likes of Jimmy Gilligan, uh, World Sterling, Kenny Jacket, Nigel Callaghan, John Barnes, these lads were all like in the first team squad, you know. So basically we had all that, this great squad of players who were uh, playing in the youth team. And up front, that was the first time I saw Mark Hughes playing. He was playing up front for Man United alongside young Norman Whiteside, who was unbelievable. And I didn't know that a month later, he was going to be in the World Cup squad, training with me to go and become the youngest player ever to play in the World Cup. So those are the stories we've been telling. And it's got fun. I've had music on. I've had Johnny Quinn from Snow Patrol. I've had Brona Gallagher, the actress from um, The Commitments and uh, Pulp Fiction and uh, the Phantom Men of Star Wars. She was hilarious. What a great girl. But I know them, you see, we've been, out, we've been out at parties before and we've been to the Snow Patrol concerts and had a lot of crack with them, you know. So um, all the people we've had on are funny people and people who are of interest. And uh, this week on Thursday, I have Carl Frampton, the uh, world champion, two-time, two-weight world champion for Northern Ireland and obviously world champion at Bantamweight and uh, Featherweight. And he's on with me on Thursday night first. And then after that, I have the legendary Glenn Hoddle, who I was just amazed at what he could do when I joined Tottenham as a 21-year-old and he was 17. I couldn't believe how good he was. But um, some of the stories there are, are great. And I ended up talking to Glenn for over an hour. You know, we exchanged <laughs> stories from on tour and uh, our, our own careers and how it went. I mean, I'm not even in the same league as Glenn when it comes to ability and skill. Glenn could do it all with either foot. And uh, he ended up 53 internationals for England and eight goals. And I'm saying, I can't be right, Glenn. You played for nearly 10 years and you only got 53 caps. I think it's disgraceful. So I played like 63 caps in, in nine and a half, 10 years and scored uh, 12, 13 goals for Northern Ireland. So I said, you know, it can't be right. But um, he said it was to do with the time and the age in football in the 70s and 80s. You know, it wasn't, be, it wasn't good enough just to be the talent that he was. You had to be able to tackle and you had to go from box to box and, and all the other as aspects of football. So Glenn was explaining that when he went to Monaco under Arsene Wenger and won the league, by the way, uh, when he was there, and he said it was fantastic because he played in an advanced role in midfield. It was like a diamond and he was at the front and there was a striker, Mark Haley was up front and he was playing behind him. Glenn was scoring a goal every two games from midfield. He loved it. And Arsene would shout at him if he came back over the halfway line. You know, stuff like that. It's like crazy. But uh, it's lovely to hear people talk about how football has evolved. And I explained to him, I couldn't believe that, that when I went to Spain in 1983, you know, that I was the big busman sort of British style centre forward who was hitting everybody, goalkeeper, centre half, and, and you know, rough and ready. And the technique at the back, my, my centre half, who was the captain, uh, Rafael Gallardo, was probably the most technical player on the pitch. Six foot tall, great feet, dribble, could pass, one twos, all a lot. But he couldn't tackle. He couldn't tackle. How can you have a centre half who can't tackle? Callum, I mean, and Glenn was laughing. He was saying, I know, he said, but seeing the continent, it's different. They have one who can maybe tackle 
and the other one who's good on the ball. So the, the one who could tackle would win the ball, given the one who would play, and he would start it off from the back. And, you know, it's great how you listen to it. And his opinion is the greatest player he's ever seen was Maradona. And I said, well, he would be the second greatest player, maybe the third greatest player I've ever seen, because I played with George Best. And my argument, if George was playing now, he on these level playing fields where there's no bumps and you can't kick them from all angles, I said he would just run right. He'd score 40, 50 goals a season. And, uh, of course, Lionel Messi, who I love. I see your wee shirt up behind there. Big Messi fan. And uh, even Ozzy Ardiles conceded a couple of years ago to me. He said Maradona was the best ever. And then a couple of years ago, he said, I'm, I'm thinking now, Jerry, you're right. He says, I think Messi is better, maybe, you know. So there's all these arguments. Well, it's all opinions. So I've, I've enjoyed what I've been doing, and we're continuing doing it. So this week, it's going to be fun with uh, Glenn Hoddle and obviously with Card Frampton different sports and then I've got a singing bit on at the end which is a guy James Huish who's a fabulous singer from Northern Ireland I put him on for a musical piece for three minutes and then I'll interview him about what he's doing here and he does a lot of good stuff for young young kids developing their talents and putting them on the shows and what have you so it's a it's a feel-good sort of um, show where we bring on a lot of people there's funny stories on it and there's stuff that makes you go wow absolutely and in, and in terms of George Best I do a show with Willie Morgan every fortnight now, and Willie always talks about George in the in, in the highest possible standing, and and he says that George, in many ways, was misunderstood. Lots of people see this sort of caricature of George being the flashy kind of guy. He says, but not really George. He said George was an immense talent, and he was actually quite a quiet guy. What was he like from your perspective with the national team? He was shy. He was always shy. George wouldn't say booty a goose. He was so sharp, it was untrue. But if you put him on a football pitch and give him a challenge, that, that's him. He lived and breathed football. I mean, I watched him in training. And when I, I joined the, the Northern Ireland squad um, the first time, I remember Danny Blanchflower uh, brought me into the squad and I trained. And we were playing Holland in a World Cup qualifier in Rotterdam. And Josh, George hadn't really played serious football since he left and went to the States around 23-24 so he never hit his peak but even when he was overweight and he, he wasn't uh, properly trained he still had this ability a natural ability and he had two feet and he scored with his left foot and his right foot he wasn't the biggest person in the world but he scored goals with his head because he was so athletic he was a brilliant trainer he would train all day just ask him to run and do stuff he could do it and, and another way, I've looked at him and he was like a, a ballet dancer. His balance and his poise on the ball was incredible. He would swerve to the left and he would be 45 degrees and the defenders are going with him. And then he'd check and he comes straight over and they're still going one way and he's going on the other. He had this balance. And I was talking to Glenn Hall about it. And I, I see it in Messi, but Messi was small. Messi was five foot seven. George was five nine-ish, you know? So it's like, there was something about him. He just had this ability and he loved enjoying the game and he loved making people laugh and, and making you get off your seats and clap because he could do stuff that nobody else could do. And he used to love nutmegging everybody in training. He would nutmeg you <laughs> and you wouldn't know what it was coming. It was there. He'd be leaning to his left and then he, he'd, he'd come back in on his right and he'd flick it with the outside of his right foot through your legs and around the other side. And he could do it like three, four, five, six times in a training session. And he would catch you and he was so good at it. And then the lads, after a couple of, of uh, minutes playing with him, used to keep their legs closed. They'd shut their legs tight. And George would play a one-two off your shins and go past you. I mean, he was amazing. His quick reactions and his thoughts were way ahead of anybody else. And uh, Danny Blansfler told me uh, we were playing Germany, West Germany, it was then, 1977. And he said... Uh, uh, you're you're playing tomorrow with George. He said, I'm going to play up front with George Best. And I went, all my dreams have come true. Now, you know, representing my country and I'm playing with one of the greatest players ever I've ever seen and who was a hero to me when I was a boy growing up. And I wasn't even a Man United supporter. I was a lead supporter. So, you know, it was great. You know, and then uh, I remember the game a few months before that, which I didn't play in, in Rotterdam. We drew 2-2 with the Dutch in Rotterdam. And we went 1-0 up and Cruyff was playing and Niskins was playing and Van Hannigan was playing and the, the Van de Kirkhoffs and the Johnny Reps. I mean, they had an unbelievable team. And everybody's going on about Cruyff and they were saying to Cruyff, look, this guy, this guy, George Best, like he, he's, he's some footballer. But George, uh, you know, Cruyff didn't look upon him as a proper player because he was playing over in the States and he had gone away. 
So George turned up and just typical of George, he gets on and they put Neeskins on him. And Neeskins comes in to have a kick at him and George straight away, straight through his legs, round the other side and Neeskins went, oh, here we go. And then Cruyff came in to try and tackle George and George went bang, slipped it through Cruyff's legs and the Dutch crowd love it. They, they're all up applauding. George put one of the best performances you've ever seen. We ended up drawing 2-2. Two, two. And afterwards, Cruyff went straight over and goes, me and you swap shirts. Cruyff swap shirts with Bestie. It was, it was great to see. And I played a couple of uh, friendly matches about 15, 20 years ago in Germany. And uh, it was a Dutch-European and British teams were playing uh, the Italian 82 World Cup team. And Neeskens was in my team. And I said to him, I remember seeing you play. I said, uh, in Rotterdam, he said, you see that game? And I said, I was on the bench. I said, I didn't play. And he went, George Best, straight through my legs. I thought, no, I'm not going to hear him anymore. And he was so funny because he knew, he said, this guy was brilliant. And we didn't really know anything about him. So George was an enigma. And I think he could have been something special, in my opinion, you know. See, see in terms of playing up front with George, as you said, getting that experience, what was that like from you, yeah. for, for, for you in the sense that, as you said, you grew up really watching him as a kid thinking, wow, was that a big, obviously it was a big moment for you, but what was he like to play alongside? Um, he was brilliant because he's your hero. He was my hero and I'd seen what he could do in training. So, I mean, it was a bit off-putting at first because when you're making your, your debut against the world champions, it's daunting. And um, I was looking forward to it. I was just so excited. And uh, George had come on and he was, sent, he was asked by the press, about you know making uh, my making the debut up front with him, and he said Jerry's a big strong lad. He said he can catch pigeons. He said he's going to do well, and I thought George Best is saying that about me. So it gives you a little bit of confidence and belief. So anyway, fifteen or twenty minutes into the game, there's a cross comes over from the left hand side, and I'm coming out of the far post, and I headed it, and I should have hit the target, and I put it over the crossbar, and and, I, and about ten minutes later, another cross came into the far post, and I remember it clearly, and I thought I'm not going to miss this one. I'm going to cushion it. Somebody else can miss it, and I put it back into the danger area rather than go for goal. That's the sort of thing it has the effect it has on you as a young player who didn't have the experience of international football and playing against uh, some of the best players in, in the world. Setmeyer was in goal. You know, uh, Backenbar was playing at the back. I mean, they had a they had an unbelievable team. And I thought we played well for the guts of an hour against the Germans. And then we ran out of steam and I got taken off and a few other people got taken off. But it was a great um, debut in terms of playing against the world champions and uh, playing alongside George and some fantastic players. Pat Jennings was our goalkeeper. And I mean, best goalkeeper in the world for me for around seven or eight years, Pat, was amazing. Staying on your international career before we then come to your club career, what was it like playing at the World Cup in 82? And describe the goal against Spain, because you're asked about that so many times. It's an iconic moment. It was. um, I mean, I started playing international football in 1976-77. And... um, the World Cup didn't come for another five years. And that team, we took a lot of drubbings in 78, 79. We, you know, Danny was our manager and we got hammered by England and a lot of other teams because we had young players like Jimmy Nickel and um, Sammy had a bit more experience. Martin O'Neill had a bit more experience, but they were still quite young. And uh, we had a lot of young players coming through the team. And uh, it was like John McClelland didn't have that many international appearances. Um, Chris Nickel was a, a stalwart. Uh, Mal Donaghy didn't have that many international appearances before that so and David McCreary so the team was evolving and Norman made his debut that was the, the big surprise obviously but then Billy Hamilton the same Billy didn't play that many games actually Billy loved playing against Scotland I think his first two international goals came against Scotland in two separate games and one was in the World Cup qualifiers at Hamden so um, you know we, we had uh, a young side who was still evolving but it all came together around 1980 when we went on the campaign and we went away to Israel and drew our first game and then came back home and beat Sweden 3-0 and we went on a run and we found out about ourselves how solid we were at the back. We didn't concede much. We had a lot of lads who were good athletes who played, not all at top flight football because in 80-81, I was playing at Watford in the second division as was Mal Donnelly. He was at Luton, you know, and a lot of the players were playing not in top flight football but um, lesser clubs than that. So um, we grew in stature as we went through to qualify. Portugal and Scotland were the two favourites to qualify, the top two out of the group. And Scotland finished top of the group. And we drew both games against Scotland. And uh, Portugal beat us in Portugal, but we beat them in Belfast. So we, to finish above Portugal, 
was a big achievement for us and it gave us more confidence going out there. But even then, we had the British Championships and then we trained down in Brighton before we went to Spain and uh, we were based in Valencia and nobody gave us a chance. They said, you're in the group with Spain, the favourites and the host nation. You've got Honduras, who are a great South American side who have qualified and you've got Yugoslavia who scored 26, 27 goals in qualifying. So there's no way you're going to... They said, you won't... Jimmy Greaves, I think, said, you're not going to score a goal and you won't even get a point. And he says, Pat Jennings is a friend of mine. He says, he's a good lad. He says, but I'm sorry, I can't see the Northern lads doing anything at all. So he, he wrote us off. And we got a wee bit wound up about that and thought, well, do you know what? You know, we're a good bunch of lads and we were compact and we started to believe in ourselves. And we had a great manager in Billy Bingham. Billy had great ideas and his idea to bring Norman up front, stick him on the left-hand side, who was natural left-footed, which we didn't have. And Billy Hamilton was the target man alongside him. Drop me into right side of midfield so that I could support Jimmy Nickel and then get forward from deep positions because I was the fittest player at the club. I could run all day. And he wanted to use those assets and it worked out really well for us. So I ended up scoring three goals in the World Cup in 82 and um, beating Spain 1-0 in a night that everybody said with no chance. But the story was the day before, we were finished our training session in the morning, had our lunch. We were allowed to have an hour sunbathing by the pool. Martin O'Neill was the captain and he called us all over and he said, right lads, everybody around here in a, in a huddle. And he said, look, big game tomorrow. He said, uh, we'll have to win it. He said, the Spanish are under pressure. Uh, they're the favourites. They're expected to beat us. They're expected to do everything. He says, but we're good at keeping it solid at the back. We're going to frustrate them for the first 25, 30 minutes. And he said, then we're going to start getting more into the game and we'll create four or five chances. He said, we'll take one of them. We'll beat them one nil. That was the day before the game. Martin told us that. So that's the true story. And that's exactly how it ha happened. Although he didn't tell me Maldonado was going to get sent off about 50 minutes into the game. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of Martin and you, um, you know Martin very well. Um, in the UK, yeah. Martin's known very well. People, people of my generation who maybe haven't watched older clips or are aware of maybe football history will know Martin more as a manager rather than a player. What was he like as a player? Because... Obviously, with the Nottingham Forest team, having myself, I've looked back at that era and what a team they had. But what was Martin like for maybe people of my generation that aren't aware? Technically, he was very, very good. And he was a goal scorer midfield. If you check his record for Northern Ireland, he scored a lot of goals from midfield. And he scored a lot of goals for Nottingham Forest from midfield. And uh, Martin technically was really good. Um, great leadership qualities, though. And I mean, Billy Bingham spotted that very very early on when he became manager of Northern Ireland and he appointed uh, Martin as a captain in 19 I think it was around 1979-80 Martin was appointed captain and uh, he was a great captain he led by example and he would never be found one and important goals he scored some very important goals for Northern Ireland and the most important goal he scored which was never allowed and that was in the quarterfinal against France when it was nil-nil and if you check it, Callum, you'll see. He played a one-two with me. I just cushioned the ball off at an angle. And Martin went on and hit it on the half volley. And it's a brilliant goal. And the, the linesman disallowed it. And Martin was never offside. He was two yards on. And I'm telling you, if we had scored that goal, we were the type of team that would go, shut up, shut up. Come on, come on to us. And we wouldn't have had the attack then. We wouldn't have had to take the game to the French, which is what we had to do. We had to beat the French to go through to the semi-final. And I still feel that if that goal had accounted, we could have went on and played Germany in the semi-final and anything would have happened. Absolutely. And what an insight that is. And for you, Jerry, you obviously being from Northern Ireland, what was your life like before you joined Tottenham and how did you get spotted by them? Right. Never played any soccer until I was 16, 17. Uh, played Gaelic football in Hurling. That's wow. all I played, Gaelic football. And I was... I was a much better Gaelic footballer and hurler than I was a soccer player, I believe you me. And I uh, won an All-Ireland Hurling medal when I was 17 for Antrim. We played play Tipperary in the All-Ireland final at Croke Park. And that was my first All-Ireland title I won. Then the following week, I went back as captain of the uh, Antrim Vocational School football team. And we lost to uh, Mayo. We lost by a point in the final. And uh, I played senior football Gaelic when I was 15 and a half years old. And I played it right through to uh, the end of my career. It was a violent game, quite a rough game. And um, 
there was always punches thrown and it was, it was good fun. I loved it. It was a bit of banter for me. And um, I was rough and ready and I was fit lad. And uh, I got suspended when I was 17 um, for busting a guy's jaw. And they suspended me for four weeks, which was quite a long time then. And I started playing a bit of soccer. And I got spotted playing soccer and played three or four games in the amateur league for Crummy Galbian. And uh, while I was playing for Crummy Galbian, Billy Neal and Bertie Neal had come to watch me play uh, in one of the games and asked me to train down at Bangor. And I went to Bangor on the Tuesday and the Thursday night and trained with the, the lads. And the coach at the time, Ralph McGoogian, asked me if I'd play on the Saturday, but I wasn't going to start. I'd have to be on the bench because it was a semi-final of uh, Stevenson's Cup. And he said, you're going to have to be on the bench because these lads have worked to get there. And I said, no problem, you know. And I couldn't play other sports anyway at the time because it was suspended. So uh, anyway, I, uh, I was on the bench at the civil service grounds. It was 1-1. And I came on as a sub with 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to go. And uh, I went past a couple of players. I got the ball. He told me to go and get a goal. So I went past a couple of players. And I had a shot. But the, the big centre half tried to take me out. And I had a shot, and the keeper saved it, and the rebound went to Gary Reid, and Gary stuck in the back of the net. It was 2-1. And when I turned around, the big gorilla was was coming for me, and I, there was words exchanged, and they sort of pulled me away. But a few minutes later, I went past him again, and stuck one in the back of the net and turned around. He was coming at me, and I, I hit him right hook, and um, I got sent off my first game for Bangor. So I was learning lessons very young, and... Um, <laughs> so the lads gave me some stick when I went into training the following Tuesday, Thursday down in Bangor and Bertie Neal called me in and explained to me you're not playing Gaelic football now you don't punch people here you have to <laughs> you know. but he, he said he was going to hit me he was going to break my legs he said well he didn't really mean it and I said well he shouldn't have said it <laughs> so we had a lot of fun but when I was learning the, the, the rules I didn't know about offside and didn't know anything so I learned over a two to three year period in the Irish League playing for Bangor and had a lot of success there. Won the County Anthem Shield when we beat Glen Tour at the Oval. I scored the winning goal there. Then we got the semi-final. We beat the Stillery 5-1. And I think I scored four of the five goals. But I signed a couple of days after that for Tottenham. And I couldn't play the final of the Ulster Cup. Couldn't play that one. So I was disappointed. But listen, I went to Tottenham and had a great career. So, you know, it was great for me. To, well, one, it was great to get out of Belfast because it was, it was like... Uh, you know, the, the the OK Corral at that stage, you know, in Belfast. You know, so it was great that I had an opportunity to go over to England and show whether it could be good enough to play professional football. And I had that opportunity and I took it. And then um, the rest all history after that, Callum. Am I right in saying that, obviously, Terry Neal brings you there, but Keith Birkinshaw takes over. Am I right in saying that he played you at centre-half for a few games? More than a few games. I talked to Glenn Hall about that. And um, I have to say, Terry, we had a problem. Glenn Hall was telling me about the times he played in goal. And he did. He played, I think, at least three times I remember Glenn in goal. You know, and one of them, um, I said about me scoring my first goal for Spurs against Leeds. And he said, is that the game I went into goal? I said, yes, you ended up in goal. And then I ended up in centre-half because Paul, Paul Miller hit Ray Hankin when I put his 1-0 up. And he hit Ray Hagen off the ball when the ball was out of the penalty area. But the linesman saw it and called the referee over, told the referee. So the referee came back and stopped the play. Red card to Paul Miller, sent him off and awarded a penalty kick the leads. So they scored the penalty and it was 1-1 and I had to go and play centre-half. And that was the first time I played centre-half. And I could play centre-half. You know, it was, it was easy for me. I was quick, I was strong. And I would, anything that moved that, hit it. You know, there was no problem. But I wanted to be up front where it was enjoyable. And, uh, you know, Glenn, <laughs> another game where we played, Spurs played Manchester United in a replay at Old Trafford. And um, Melia Alexic has come for a cross and Joe Jordan caught him with his elbow. And Melia was out before he hit the ground and he busted his knee and he busted his jaw. And Glenn went in the goal and made two or three brilliant saves. And Ozzy scored the winner in injury time, or maybe it was extra time. So Ozzy scored the winner. And I remember that. And um, and I said to Glenn, do you remember the game in Norway? We went out to Norway and I, I ended up playing goal. He says, I remember that as well. So it was crazy. I played right back. I played centre half. I played right wing. I played midfield. But I wanted to play up front. That was the position I wanted to play in. So um, Keith fancied me as a centre half. And uh, I wasn't overly keen to, to play at centre half. But I stayed at the club for another year and a half after that, even though that's the position he wanted me to play in. And in terms of the move to Watford, was that 
about getting more games up front, and I'm also right in saying you made the mistake of calling the gaffer Graham when you met him for the first time. <laughs> it still goes down well. Steve Harrison's told everybody the story, you know, because he was the boss. Everybody called him the boss or gaffer. And I called Keith Keith when I was at Tottenham. Everybody called him Keith by his first name. So when I joined uh, Watford, uh, he made it clear, you know, um, Jerry, I know he said that when you were at Tottenham, you called Keith by his first name, Keith, but here they called me the boss. And I said, that's okay with me, Graham. <laughs> So Steve Harrison couldn't stop laughing when he tells people that story. And uh, Graham loved it as well. Graham was over, God rest his soul. He came over to see his coaching over in Northern Ireland a few years ago. And I had him up in the house. I picked him at the airport and brought him in for, for a wee sandwich and a cup of tea. And uh, he was telling my wife some stories. And uh, we had a lot of fun. But a uh, great manager and a fantastic person. Whenever people think of Watford, especially that era, people think of Elton John. Did you ever have any experience of dealing with Elton during your time at the club? Only three years. <laughs> he was brilliant. He was so much fun. Um, he was a, he was one of those chairmen that would be at every game. He wanted to see the games. He wanted to be with the players. When we went on tour, when we were going to China, he was with us. You know, he was brilliant. And then Christmas parties, he was fantastic. And we had a lot of fun at the Christmas parties. And then uh, every Sunday, the Sunday before the season kicked off, um, Graham would have a party at his house in Windsor. And he invited everybody, all the players and their families. And you could bring, you know, your kids. And then he invited the groundsman and his family. And he invited the guys in the office and their family. So everybody was looked after. And he had, he was just amazing. And he had music on for us. And he, he had, uh, he would come in. Sometimes he would land in on a helicopter. He'd fly in from America just for the party. And he'd come in on a private helicopter. And he'd land on his five-a-side court. And, uh, you know, it was class. He had... Uh, his Ferraris and all his different cars and his, uh, his stables it was. And Luther Blissett and I would jump in the Ferrari and take it for a spin around the, the state. You know, it was great fun. You can't do stuff like that with certain German now. I mean, the rules have changed so much, but it was fantastic. And he was just wonderful, you know, and uh, had a lot of fun with him, a lot of great time. See, in terms of the move abroad, Jerry, was that something that was an ambition of yours? or did it, How did that come about? Well, I, it was after the 82 World Cup and I was voted the best British player in the World Cup and won the Golden Boot. And I came back. And when I came back, um, Graham was really proud because we had just got promoted to Watford. And he had said to me, look, I'm going to give you an extra seven or eight days off because, you know, you've just finished in the quarterfinal stages. The other lads have all had a month off. And he said, I'll give you an extra seven days, but I need you to go in and do a wee piece at the BBC, but wear your Watford shirt and tie and your suit and all the rest of it. So you're representing us. And I said, yes. So then I won the, the, the Golden Boot and there was a big awards at the uh, Ritz in London. And I took Elton John with me as my guest and he went with me representing Watford Football Club to collect the Golden Boot. And uh, it was a real family. There was a lovely family feeling about Watford. It was a great club. And um, the season started off and I was flying. I was just flying. I was so fit. And I couldn't wait for the games to come round. But like, do you know when you're at your, your peak, there's always something brings you down the ground. And I'd done three games. I think I'd scored two or three goals in my first three games. And I remember jumping for a ball in a, in a training match. And I came down to land on one leg and I went over on it. And I broke my ankle and my leg. I broke my fib and my tip. So I was out for nearly three months. And it was a kick in the teeth, but you have to accept it and get on with it. And Brian was great for me, you know, uh, while I was doing that. He, he had the physio pick me up and bring me in, and I, I did weights every day, even with the plaster cast on, I did the weights every day. So when they took the plaster cast off, I was looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I had the best upper body you'd ever seen. It was just ridiculous, but I couldn't run, and I had to start to learn to run again and build the muscle up in my calf. So it was hard, you know, to do that. And after that, when I got back in, Watford had a great season. We finished runners-up to Liverpool. Liverpool won the title in 1983, 82-83 season. And we were runners-up. Man United finished third. So to be runners-up for a first year in top-flight football. And I scored the opening goal against Everton. So first person to score uh, a goal for Watford in top-flight football was a bit of history as well. So there's lots of things that I really enjoyed. But I was 29 then. And I thought, you know, how long have I got left career-wise? And I'd had a lot of clubs come and sniffing. Sevilla, a couple of German clubs had come in. And then Real Mallorca made an approach and Graham Taylor told me about it. He's an honest man. And he said, Jerry, I have to tell you, this club made a good offer for you. 
you know, they offered 250,000. And I says, right, and he says, do you want to speak to them? I said, look, I've nothing to lose by speaking to them. So I had a chat with the, the guy who came over and he didn't speak any English, so we had an interpreter. And I then told Eddie Plumley, who was the secretary, that I think I would like to take it further and go and have a word and look at the setup in, in Mallorca. And I knew I had maybe two or three years left of my career. And I thought, this is a good opportunity to try out. Nobody really had the, the, the guts to, to go abroad to Spain. A lot of had went to, to Italy, but not to Spain. So I, I decided I would, I would go and give it a try. And um, it worked out really well. I had two years there. I learned about Spanish football and came back. And then, what, several years later, I ended up working for Sky for 22 years talking about Spanish football. You know, so... It was some things are meant to be, Callum, and I think that was just a wee uh, part of history where you know I was destined to do that, and my gut feeling told me it was right, so I did it. And in terms of Spanish football, your passion for Spanish football has always been there, especially since you played over there. How did the move to Sky come about? Because it's something that of my childhood, growing up, your voice and, and the voice of others on Sky covering Spanish football was it was just second nature. It was. I mean, I've been told that so often. And uh, it was one of those where I was living down in Brighton and George Best phoned me up and said, big man, what are you doing on Sunday? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, listen, I'm, they're, they're looking to do a five-a-side game for like 15, 20 minutes at Battersea Park. It's for Channel 4, Chrysalis. And he said, they want to see the benefits. He said, because I told him you played in Spain and you'd said how it was different and about you get more touches in the ball when you're playing on the five-a-side and they do more small-sided games rather than the FNB 11. And I was explaining to a lot of people that. And I learned a lot when I was in Spain. And I said, right. And he said, uh, would you do that? And I said, yeah. He says, me, you and a couple of other lads. I'll get some more lads. I said, we'll just do it for 15, 20 minutes. And then they're taking us for a meal. He said, we're going to have something to eat and drink. He said, well, have a wee, a wee bit of crack. And I said, look, I look forward to seeing you. So on the Saturday, he phoned me. He says, you still okay for tomorrow? I said, yes, George, I am. And he went, there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? He says, I can't make it now. And I went, you can't make it? He says, no. He says, but you, you, you turn up. And I said, so who else is coming? He said, well, there's nobody else. He said, except you. You're going to need to get another four. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to get another four. And you know, Kenny Sampson and a few of the boys to turn up. And we did a 15, 20-minute session for Christmas. And afterwards, I explained, you know, for kids playing, Five aside, you get more touches on the ball, you can score more goals, you can practice your techniques better. I said, and it's more exciting. I said, and that's all they do over there. They play football sala in Spain, smaller ball, and that's how I improved their skills and technique and stuff. So we did the stuff. And then afterwards, the guy, the producer said to me, um, George was telling me you played in Spain. I says, I did. He said, well, next week, he said, I'm working for Sky. They've employed me to take on the Spanish football. He says, we know nothing about Spanish football. Would you come on as a guest and try it out? And I said, yeah, when do you need me? He said, 7 o'clock Saturday night next week. And I said, okay. So I went and did the Spanish at 7 o'clock the following Saturday. And, and that was the start. And then the set thought it went really well. Can you come in next week? So I said, yeah, okay. So I started doing it on a regular basis. Then they gave me a contract for the rest of the season. And then Sky decided to take it on themselves rather than bringing a crew from another company like Chrysalis. So they took it and they put more money into it and developed it. And I wanted it to grow because there was, a, there was something there that people needed to know about because I knew the technique and the skill in Spain was much better than the technique and skill in, in the Premier League. So that was the way I, I portrayed it. So me and Andy Gregg, Richard Keyes, used to have some banter over that over the years. He would say the Premier League is the best league in the world. How can it be the best league? I said, when well, the best players are all playing in Spain, there's more technique. And they was going, oh, no, it's not. I said, well, who won the Champions League this year? Barcelona. Who won it last year? Real Madrid. I said, come on. And so then you'd have three Spanish teams in the last four. And, you know, it was stuff like that. And the banter was great. We used to have, I'd wind him up, he would wind me up. You know, it was great fun. So um, that's how I started off with the Spanish. And then the uh, Revista de la Liga came in after three or four years and Guillaume Balaguer was fantastic when he came in game added another dimension to it with his contacts through the press and everything so um, we had a great team Rob Palmer uh, was fantastic Kevin Keating uh, myself and obviously uh, game that was the crew and then we had good guests coming in and then game would bring in like Michel Salgado he would come in as a guest he spoke good English we stuck him on the show then it was guys coming in the era and then it was Marcelino and we had all different guests coming in and then one week game would say oh listen I've got an interview with the president of uh, Barcelona. So he, he, 
you know, it was great for us. So we, we were getting an insight. Then one game we went to do a Classico and uh, Classicos were hard. It was like packed capacity crowd. And we went to the Barcelona to the new camp and uh, you couldn't even get anywhere near. In the press room, it was enough room for maybe 40, 50, 60 people. But there was maybe 200 people jammed into it. It was ridiculous. And I said, listen, we need to get something to help us, you know, get an edge on the opposition. And he said, well, he said, if we can get on the pitch, he said, and do an interview on the pitch, we're never going to do an interview here. And I said, well, you know, the managers were sacked about a month ago and they appointed Lorenzo Serraferrer. And uh, Game says, I know that. And I said, we used my mate at Mallorca. He was a reserve team manager. Him and I were good friends. I said, I'll go and see if I can get in touch with him. So knocked on the, the manager's door and this guy opened the door and he said, Hola, and I said, uh, yo soy un amigo de uh, Lorenzo Serraferrer, soy Jerry Armstrong. And he said, espera un momento, and he turned and he, he had a shout to Lorenzo. Lorenzo came to the door, he went, Jerry, amigo! So in we went, so we got in, and he gave us all these special shirts, bibs, to get us on the pitch. And we went in down the tunnel, we went into the dressing rooms, the players were on the pitch. We looked, there was a chapel on the way down the stairs. There's a wee chapel on the right. So we went in and I said, this must, you must be blessing yourself before you go out to play against them and stuff like that. We had brilliant banter. Then we went on the pitch and then Steve McManaman was coming off it. And there was Fernando Hierro and there was Luis Figo and Raul. And we were chatting to them all. It was, and it was live. We were doing it live and Sky had never had stuff like that. So we got an insight and then we got on the pitch and just had a great time. And we took it on to another level and another level. So, it just grew and grew, and we grew with it, and we loved it. We loved what we were doing because it was something special. You, you talked earlier on about your admiration for Messi and how you believe he is up there in being the greatest player ever. Describe Pep's Barcelona team, because covering Spanish football as you were doing regularly at that time, that must have been a joy to watch week in, week out. Well, I, I saw him playing. I saw him coming through. I remember Rob Palmer introducing him as a sub one game. I'd never seen him play before and he was only 17 at the time and he came on and he just beat one player, beat two, great speed, first touch, tried to chip the goalkeeper from like 15 yards and stuff like that and I went, wow, this, this kid's brilliant, I'm looking forward to seeing him and then we just watched them evolve but then there were so many good players at Barcelona at the time and we were reading about all the talent and uh, it wasn't just Barcelona though, you know, we, we, we looked at Deportiva La Coruña and you had Rivaldo was playing for them and he was a Brazilian, left-footed, overhead kicks, sensational player. You had uh, Mara Silva in the middle of the park, anchorman in midfield, never gave the ball away. You know, we we so many good players in all the different teams. Celta Vigo, Alexander Mostafoy, who was a Russian, who great technique on the ball. Valery Carpin, another winger, who was bringing across the So all the talent that we saw developing, and we just, we just wanted to embrace it and talk about it. And uh, as a result of that, Myself and Rob and the boys just we just got on board and it was a it was a brilliant journey. But um, Messi, I watched him develop over a, a few years. But there were so many good players. I mean, at that stage, I loved Met uh, Iniesta, Andres Iniesta. I could watch him playing all day. He was just like a will of the wisp. He was flicking it. He was spinning, and he wasn't a great finisher. He couldn't score many goals, but I, he had to be on the team because he was exciting. He made fans jump off their seats, and then Messi would score the goals ultimately. And he became a better player because he played with that quality. He played with Xavi. He played with Andres Iniesta. He played with Pique. You know, and Danny Alves was his mate. Messi's mate was Danny Alves. And Danny's a comedian. He's a really funny guy. And um, oh, listen, I, I went down with, uh, uh, what's his name? Reisinger, you know, the fullback who played yes. for Barcelona. Yeah. Right? He was our guest. And I was interviewing him uh, on the pitch. And uh, with them, who was it? No, I was being interviewed with him, Michael, on the pitch at Barcelona. And Danny Alves came out with uh, Messi. And they, they were keeping the ball up from about 10 yards away. So they were controlling it and then volleying back to each other. And he would control it and volley it back. So he controlled it with his right foot and volley it with his left foot. And then Danny would control it with his right foot and volley it with his left foot. And then Messi would control it with his left foot and volley it with his right foot. And they were doing it backwards and forwards. And then gradually they started sliding across towards where we were. So Messi went round the back of uh, myself. And I was facing Michael. And uh, Danny Alves went the other way. And they were knocking the ball over our head, backwards and forwards, while we were doing the interview. Now, stuff like that, you, it doesn't happen. It just, and it was like, 
and there was people were sort of shouting. I was going, let them, let them do it. This is what you want. That's what it's all about, you know. And it was fantastic to have the opportunity to see these guys and, and to, to watch them do that. They were just like kids. They were loving their football. Uh, they couldn't wait to turn up for training every day. And when you've got your heart and soul in it, you're, you're going to give 100%. And that's what managers need to tap into. Now, players need to love the game a lot more and need to have that feel and passion about it that want to play. And it's not all about the money. It's all about wanting to play and with your teammates. So they had that at, at, at Barcelona. And then Pep Guardiola took over. And uh, nobody knew, because Pep was a brilliant player, and uh, nobody knew how he was going to take over and how it was going to go. But he took over, and his first game, they went away from home against pretty poor team, played brilliant, created loads of chances, but never scored and lost 1-0. And then the following week, they were at home, and there was pressure on. And they played brilliant again, created 15, 16 chances, hit the target four or five times, hit the post, hit the crossbar, and they drew 1-1. <laughs> so the press are all going, he's not, he's not going to be any good here. Pep Guardiola doesn't have it. And uh, I knew he had one more game. And I was saying, you've got to give him a chance. You know, let him have a chance. And they've not been playing badly. They've just been unlucky. So the following game, they, they actually won away from home. They won comfortably, played well. And then they won 18 or 19 in a row. And then Pep did what Pep did, which was totally changed football. And they, they played, for me, that team played over two, three years, probably the best football I'd ever seen from any team. And um, they won everything. They were class to watch. And I watched them play a really good Manchester United team in a final at, uh, at Wembley. And my goodness. And that was a great Man United team with uh, Paul Scholes and co. But they were nowhere near Barcelona. Barcelona just controlled it. Passive movement, one touch, two touch. And that was the, that was the thing. And it all looked really rosy for Barcelona. They had the, the conveyor belt of the talent at La Masia. And they were coming through. The quality was coming through. But hey, look, look what's happening in the last three or four years. You know, they're getting older now. PK's getting older. Busquets is getting older. Messi's 32 coming up, you know. And, and yes, there's retired. And uh, it's, it's changed. Everything's changed. And I don't see the talent coming through. And now they're buying players like Griezmann. And they bought Suarez. And they brought in players who haven't really fitted in. So there's a bit of a crisis at, at uh, Barcelona at the moment. But as long as you've got somebody like Messi and he can do what he can do while he can't, you know, you've always got a chance. I just think at the present time, their squad's not as strong as it should be and they need to reinvest. I'm not sure they have the money to do it. And uh, the other side of it is Real Madrid's got a better squad. And there's big games coming up. Uh, Spanish football's back. Barcelona beat my old boys uh, 4-0. And, uh, you know, there's games tonight, tomorrow night. And it's a two-horse race at the minute. I think the... Real Madrid's nine points clear of third place Sevilla, and you've got Barcelona's two points clear of Real Madrid. So the top two will fight it out, but it's going to be interesting to see who finishes in the top four because Getafe and Atletico Madrid and Valencia are outside the top four, and uh, they've all had good seasons. So there's pressure on them to say Real Sociedad's done well there in fourth place, Sevilla in third place. So I'm looking forward to that. And then my boys, I'm worried about them because they. Uh, in the bottom three at the moment. So there's lots to look forward to in the Spanish league and I always keep an eye out for it. Absolutely. And before I let you go, Jerry, just a few quick fire questions to finish. Um, who was the biggest character you played with in your career? Oh, I had quite a few. When I was playing for Northern Ireland, Derek Spence was funny. Great lad. Fantastic character. Jimmy Nickel is a funny lad, great character as well. So we had, you know, every squad there was one. At Tottenham, it was Peter Taylor. Peter Taylor was a great lad, funny, funny guy, and was always up to pranks and stuff and kept everybody amused. And then when I was at Watford, it was Steve Harrison. And Steve was a player, but then went on to become a coach. And again, we had wonderful times. So uh, players, there's always characters in football who keep everybody else amused. And um, I probably I was probably as much a prankster as anybody else. You know, you have the gazes in the dressing room and the stuff he gets up to. But I like, like playing a few pranks on player, players and, and myself included. And uh, I think you need the banter in the dressing room to keep the players focused and enjoying what they're doing. Absolutely. And, and in terms of your show, we talked about at the start of this episode, how can people access it? How can people see it? And as you say, just remind us who's up in the near future. 
Um, well, I mean, it's on uh, Facebook and it's on YouTube and um, you can see it. It's on Facebook Live and uh, it's on Expo Management as well. You can get it on live as well there. Um, we've had brilliant guests and it's, it's the, the stuff we've actually done over the last eight weeks is still there. You can actually go on and go back over the, the previous guests we've had and see the sort of fun and the jokes we've had. But um, we've got a great track record at the moment. As I say, you know, last week, I had Graham Sunis on and I had Brian Hamilton on as well and a bit of music at the end. And then this week, we've got Card Frampton, uh, world champion, two-time world champion boxer. He's on first, followed by the great Glenn Hoddle, who is amazing and I have to say. And then, of course, we've got another musical part at the end of that. And there's also, we've had John Barnes on, we've had um, Johnny Quinn, from the drummer from Snow Patrol. And we've got the likes of Gary Lightbody. We've got players, lots of players lined up in the future that I've asked and uh, who have said they'd love to come on. So we're going to keep keep the theme, but I'm, I'm trying to keep a balance, Calm to be honest. I don't want it all to be sport or all football. I do different sports, so I'll bring different sportsmen on. And, um, you know, we'll have a bit of fun. And I always make sure of that. And I have the questions, knowing a little bit about them, their background. I have the questions to put them on the spot and have a bit of banter. But uh, we'll have the, the sportsmen on. And, of course, we'll have musicians on. We have a brilliant musician called James Huish, who's on this week, and he is a fabulous singer. You know, he's a Michael Bublé type, and he's class. He's a really class singer. So he's coming on. I'm going to interview him. And um, we've got plans for, for lots of other stars in the future. But um, I've asked Teddy Sheeranham. I'm trying to get dates off Teddy, who I played football with at, uh, at Millwall. I was on loan at Millwall for a couple of months, and Teddy played up front with me. And uh, we had a bit of fun there. Lots of banter. Great lad. And um, I've got Ozzy Ardiles is another one I've asked, and I'll get Ozzy on as well and talk about him winning the World Cup. That's that's going to be a great one. But there's there's so many, there is so many. So we'll just keep it going, and we'll we'll try and produce different ones. Next week, I don't know if you know, Callum, it's the 25th of June, Thursday night, and we played on the 25th of June, 38 years ago. We played Spain in Valencia and beat them one 0 That was the night of one night in Valencia. So I've got Martin O'Neill, Jimmy Nichol, David McCreary, Billy Hamilton. Sammy McElroy and as many Pat Jennings and as many of the other lads those are the ones I've only talked to so far I've got a phone job with Cleland and a lot of the lads so I'm going to try and get as many as the team wow. on as possible just for to remember 38 years ago tonight at this time we were playing Spain and Valencia in the World Cup so I think that'll be special which certainly will be and, and again I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show it's been a pleasure and I'll ensure that I encourage my listeners to, to check out your shows as well thank you for your time Jerry. Thanks, Callum. Anytime. You're more than welcome. Thank you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song